The song said, when the age of death is no more. Father, we look forward to spending eternity with you as your face shines upon us in glory. And Lord, even though when Adam sinned and death came, they did not die that day. Ultimately, they did. And Lord, we see the reverse is true for us, that as we see Jesus Christ come into our hearts, we have eternal life. Maybe not in glory that day, but as a promise that it begins now and we will be with Him forever. And we look forward to that. We thank You for who You are. Thank You for what You've accomplished in our behalf. And we pray that today as we look into Your Word, You would give us all things that we need to live in a way that brings glory and honor to You. Through Christ our Lord. Amen. Please have a seat. So I really enjoy this time of year, although I have to say that it it comes around more quickly than I would like. It just seems like we just did this. Nevertheless, once Thanksgiving is passed, and uh, for many places, even before, the Christmas music begins and uh, lighted houses, lighted trees. And the chapel has a new tree this year. It's beautiful, thanks to those who poured out their uh, creativity and their eye for beauty uh, as they decorated it. And uh, also, thank you to all those who made the Christmas shoeboxes, which will give many children joy uh, this season. So on Thanksgiving, I was, I was happy to spend a, a few minutes uh, with uh, uh, Mike and Mary Ann and, uh, and Gene and Punky were there. And we talked about how I got into college, having never stepped into a high school as a student and no prerequisite high school diploma. And so I had to thinking about this word prerequisite, and it's comprised of Two parts, uh, pre, uh, meaning before, and requisite, meaning required, whether that's by circumstances or, or something else. But it's so needful that it cannot be dispensed with. And I, I thought, who came up with that? When I was in college, I was an education major, and I thought, I think there may be a greater opportunity and perhaps a little more money in business So I flipped over to business, and my first class was calculus for business. That was my last class, (laughs) as I flipped back over to education as quickly as I could. But I I thought, okay, so who, who came up with the notion of what the prerequisites are for these educational programs? So I did a little research, and it turns out each state has their own thing, The one I downloaded, because it's the most extensive I found, uh, was from Florida. It's called Common Prerequisites. 500 pages of tiny print uh, telling what all the prerequisites were for all the degrees that could be offered 
in, in, in the state. I found one very nice graph, the University of uh, Minnesota, where they gave all the courses in uh, a uh, engineering program, 129 hours worth, and that all of the courses of the 129 uh, came from uh, 12 prerequisites, and they all came from one prerequisite, the calculus again, <laughs> raising its ugly head. And uh, so as we are entering into the season of Advent, Advent is just a Latin word uh, that means an important uh, arrival, the coming, and it's uh, largely understood as the season that precedes Christmas, the coming of, of Christ. It's a Latin, again, word. We know it a little better than the Greek word, although if you've done some studies, you've heard the Greek word uh, before, and that's the word parousia. Now, parousia is exactly where we get the word advent from in Latin. However, in church language, advent talks about Christ's first coming, and parousia is uh, talking about Christ's second coming, but they are, in fact, the same word. But I began thinking about the birth of uh, Jesus, the son of Joseph and Mary in Bethlehem, and I, I started wondering, what are the uh, prerequisites for Advent? I mean, uh, like Calculus 1, what was the entry prerequisite? Certainly there were some. And indeed, uh, there are uh, a number. Uh, one, you have to have uh, God and His character. I mean, without a merciful, loving, compassionate, forgiving God, uh, there would be no Advent most assuredly. Uh, on the other hand, if you pushed it back, uh, there would also be no uh, advent where there no creation, where there uh, no material universe. And so when you think about it that way, there are probably a lot of prerequisites. But when it comes to advent and thinking about the prerequisite, I want to focus on something that's tightly connected to Advent, and that is this. What is the purpose of the coming one, that is Advent, this important coming, or uh, a sharper point on it, why was Messiah needed? And that question takes us to Genesis 3. We're very familiar with the context. And it, uh, I'll, I'll review some of that for you. But the context uh, that we're in begins talking uh, about God asking Adam why he hid and whether or not he had eaten the forbidden fruit. And Adam uh, confessed his sin, but the first thing that he did was to uh, blame the woman and, uh, and also... Uh, blame God. Lord, the woman you you gave me uh, did this. And then so God asked the woman. And Eve also confessed, but she, of course, passed the blame on to uh, the serpent. Now, of course, God knows everything. He knew exactly what was going on. He knew what Adam and Eve had done. And while they had both confessed to eating this uh, fruit, uh, they did not take responsibility for their own actions, their own sin. Instead, 
they uh, tried to pass uh, the blame on to others, as I mentioned, including God himself. Blame here is, is the most elementary and effortless tactic that we use when we feel defensive. Oh, it's not me. I didn't do it. Not my fault, you know. Uh, and, uh, you know, like in, in marriages and relationships, you know, hey, everything would be perfect if they would just change. It's not me, you know, and so that's how we get that. But what it does against us is that we do not hold ourselves accountable. And the consequences for our behavior, our thoughts, and our feelings then become the problem for others. And we don't have any flaws, uh, and we don't have any areas that need improvement. We're we're just fine. There's a cultural shift that has happened and is in still in process, but it's, it's definitely very real. In 2002, uh, Jaslyn Bradley and Ashley Pellman sued McDonald's. Perhaps you've heard of this. It's not the woman who spilt the hot coffee on herself. No, this is uh, two young teenage girls who became obese because uh, they ate at McDonald's. And they said that it was McDonald's fault that we have become obese. You have uh, addicted us, and therefore you are responsible uh, for our condition. And uh, so the judge listened carefully, and uh, this is 2002, listened carefully and promptly said, I don't think so. You put the food in your mouth, you know, so uh, we're not going to do that. Now, fast forward, fast forward to 2010. A man sues McDonald's because he had become obese uh, through eating McDonald's foods, you know, plus, uh, plus it up or make it large or whatever. I think they even made a movie uh, film about something. Uh, like that. But anyway, so in 2002, the case was thrown out. In 2010, McDonald's had to pay. So something shifted between 2002 and 2010. And as a society, we have shifted from a culture of personal responsibility If I'm overweight, unless there's a medical condition, it's on me. Right? No, 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 no. Not anymore. No, 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 no. We have shifted from a culture of personal responsibility to victimhood. As such, we loudly proclaim to third parties, it's not my fault. And we complain, and we've, unfortunately, that has ousted uh, both toleration and negotiation to the point now where it's just who can yell uh, the loudest. And I mean that, you understand, I'm not speaking metaphorically. That's the truth. That's where we're at. People advertise their oppression as evidence that they deserve respect, and they do. 
The problem is, is it's come down to where the individual responsibility has now come down to individual respect. In other words, you need to, you need to respect me as I want to be respected. Not as society demands the more critical, the larger pieces of that. And consequently, you can say things and you can approach people in such a way where they're offended and you have no idea and yet... Uh, through social media or whatever other means, you are castigated. This is where we're at as a culture. Uh, and I just it's interesting that blame has been a part of the way we operate since the very beginning of sin. Now, interestingly enough, the Lord asked Adam and he asked Eve... He did not ask the serpent. If you notice that, it's interesting. He didn't ask him anything. Uh, He didn't interrogate the serpent at all. Satan was no victim. Satan had chosen to sin on his own. And it gives you a feeling, as you read the text, you you feel like you're part of an older discussion, an older discussion. uh, dialogue that was between God and and Satan. God knew that Satan just wanted control. I mean, what was Satan's sin? What was his original sin? He wanted to be like God. And you'll note, if you read the text, we're not going to go into that, but you'll note that that's also the lie that he puts on Adam and Eve. So God judges the these uh, participants in in humanity's fall. Okay, so there were four. If you separate the snake from being someone in control of the serpent, but that's 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 not for us this morning. What's interesting is is that he begins with the serpent. He begins. That's where he begins, and he tells them that he's uh, cursed above all other wild and domestic animals. So I want you to note that this declaration is a part of this uh, judgment. What we find is that now all the animal kingdom is is cursed. They, not just the snake, but all of the animal kingdom. And we uh, know that even though Adam did not die uh, physically the moment that he sinned, nevertheless he died spiritually because he had violated God's command. But all of creation, including the physical creation, uh, groans uh, and is subject to the curse. And just as Adam's sin is passed on to us uh, that results in death, a la Romans uh, 5, all animals uh, are cursed, especially the snake. And there's an antagonism that you see in this in this text, in 315, uh, between the devil, the serpent's uh, seed, and the woman's uh, seed. And so I think in general, you have this ongoing kingdom of light, kingdom of uh, darkness uh, metaphor that John speaks of. Uh, you know, in First John, he says, those who fear God obey his word and love others against those who are following, as Jesus himself said, their father, uh, Satan or the devil. But the second half becomes a lot more personal. It, it clearly refers to a battle 
between Satan himself and the seed of woman. And when we went through Galatians a few years ago, we, we spent a lot of time on what that meant and why the seed was singular. But here it is. It's this woman's offspring uh, as in, uh, in we see, he shall crush your head and you shall bruise his heel. Now Hebrews uh, 2.14 tells us that Satan was going to be delivered a fatal, a deadly blow. Uh, it says, For as much then as the children are partakers of flesh and blood, he also himself likewise took part of the same, that through death he might destroy him that had the power, destroy him that had the power of death, that is, the devil. Now, uh, you may uh, wonder why, uh, what Satan's judgment in Genesis 3.15 has to do with with Advent, and part of it is this. Before God even judged Adam and Eve for their sin, he revealed his plan to defeat the devil through the seed, through a son that would come from Eve. Now, that seed would be wounded by Satan's attack, but not defeated. As Isaiah said, he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him. And by or with his stripes we are healed. Now let me I want to say something about uh, the devil and, and, and Satan. The devil doesn't need to do anything to make life hard uh, for us. Just living in a fallen world, uh, there's sufficient difficulty with that. The devil does not waste his time, or I think, or even his minions, waste his time causing flat tires or broken water pipes or things that go wrong in our lives just so that we'll lose our temper. I, I believe that Satan is ultimately... Uh, lazy, and I think that why would he why would he expend energy on that when the fall takes care of that uh, by itself? The work of the devil is not for you to lose your temper. You know what the work of the devil is? You, all through Scripture, from beginning to end, you find that the work of the devil is to deceive you. That's his business. His business is. You know, we learn from Jesus Christ when he's talking about the devil and he talks about the language that he speaks. It goes to how we've turned it into a meme. How do you know the devil is lying? Because his mouth is moving. Because he's speaking. The language, he is a deceiver. That's his work. That's how he began his career and that's how he will end his career. A career trying to deceive and here we see if you go back to Genesis 3 4 you see there's two parts to that when he says you will not surely die uh, I mean if you're convinced and, and and this is the key to this you will not surely die the key to that is if you're convinced that you can get away with what God has told you not to do sooner or later if you're convinced you can get away with it you're going to try it you're going to do it. 
And, uh, and that's part of the problem is sowing this doubt. You don't need to believe what the Word of God says. It's not that critical. Part two of that is a little more subtle, and that is he's denying you what it is that you really want. I mean, with your, with your heart, you know, you really desire this thing. And the Lord is going to keep those things from you that you desire or that you want. If you hold to those two things, then, then boom, you're in the same context. That's Satan's playground. You're ripe for the deception that he will get you. When I, I uh, mentioned, I believe, last week a, a movie uh, called Come Before Winter, and you had a situation there where part of it was uh, a, a, a this uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer on the one hand, but then this uh, disinformation from the English on the uh, other hand. It was a tenuous connection, but there was a connection between the two. And, and they said their formula uh, was 80% truth. 80% truth, 20% lie, and people would swallow it. And uh, I think that that's probably Satan's uh, formula uh, right here. When we think of the promise of Christmas, we usually think of peace on earth and goodwill toward uh, men. And, and that's a beautiful promise, but that's not the first promise. That's not the promise. You know, the first promise of Christmas in Scripture was made to the serpent. We don't think of it that way. We don't look at it that way. But, you know, I mean, the symbol of the promise, uh, the symbol of the promise, just like the, the rainbow that was given uh, to remind us of the power of his judgment was the serpent crawling on its belly. I, and and there's, there's just something fascinating about that. If you look into Isaiah 65, 25, it's a description of... Uh, Life underneath the, uh, the son of uh, David, the Messiah, the king, ruling and reigning on earth. What we would call the millennium. And it's an amazing statement where it's talking about lions and lambs. And it's talking about all of these situations where these naturally uh, the things that are hostile to life or to one another are living together in harmony. But you know what it says? The snake will continue to crawl on its belly. This is, an e this is, not, this is not just a symbol. This is, this is a symbol like the rainbow that will go until, as we uh, sang this morning, uh, death, uh, the, the age of death is no, uh, no more. And so you have this reference here of the Savior it's called, it's a big word, you can look it up if you care to, but theologians call it the Proto-Evangelium, which is the first, God, before the first gospel kind of a thing. And it, this is the earliest time where you see this sea change occur in the entire Bible. Adam and Eve, the first human couple disobeyed that sin led to 3.15, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. And he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. 
in many ways, this summarized the, uh, the great drama of all human history. This great battle between the serpent, that is Satan, and the seed of woman, that is Jesus, and how the suffering Christ, bruised, healed, uh, will ultimately have victory. Now, if nothing was done, then God's ultimate, His pinnacle of creation would be laid to waste. But this promise uh, comes in. And while it does look forward more to uh, Jesus' death and resurrection than in his birth, it still reminds us that God's intention was to provide salvation. Not through an angel, not through a, a created uh, being, especially created for that purpose, but by uh, becoming a human uh, being, born like any other human, uh, growing from a baby to a man uh, and, and, and entering into our uh, world dying, being resurrected, and that power of the resurrection crushes Satan's power uh, forever. So, think about Eve as she's listening to uh, this. She realizes that it was, that was, it would be through her seed that this deception would be corrected. And that's why, uh, I, I believe this is why, when she has uh, Cain... She's, uh, she's ecstatic in the scripture. She just is uh, wonderful. I, I have a, a man. Why? Because I believe she's thinking the same thing that the disciples were thinking. That the Lord's going to come back tomorrow. And I think she was thinking, oh, okay. I have a, a seed now. This, he's going to take care of this thing. And of course, uh, you know, what does Cain do? Uh, you know, her hopes put in him were uh, mislaid and then perhaps she thought Abel for a while until Cain murdered him and then Seth but ultimately she died and Seth died and then thousands of years later you have a man sitting wondering pondering what in the world is he going to do because the woman that he is engaged to to marry is pregnant and he intended to privately divorce her, but an angel appears and said, do not be afraid to marry this woman. This baby is conceived through the Holy Spirit. Call him Jesus, for he will save his people from their sin. So you see that Jesus is the seed of the woman. We see this also in Isaiah. Behold, a virgin shall bear a son, and his name will be called Emmanuel, God with us. Galatians 4 uh, tells us that when the time was perfect, when it was just right, God sent his son to be born of a woman, subject to the law of Moses. The son would redeem those under the law, those who could not keep the law but we're subject to its punishment. I mean, so we can praise God and should uh, because Christ defeated Satan. And because Satan is defeated, ultimately death is defeated, vanquished through Christ's death on, on the cross. 
part of this, John Wesley wrote, and I looked it up in our hymnal, and the, this verse isn't there. So I thought, well, okay, you may know this verse, you may not know it, but when Hark the Herald Angels Sing, here's, here's the verse, Come, desire of nations, come. Fix in us thy humble home. Rise the woman's conquering seed. Bruise in us, in us, the serpent's head. Adam's likeness now efface. Stamp thine image in its place. Second Adam from above, that's Jesus. Reinstate us with thy love. Hark. The herald angels sing glory to the newborn king. With the possible exception of John 3.16, few verses in the Bible are more crucial or definitive than Genesis 3.15. It creates an expectation of a redeemer who would descend from Adam and Eve. And even though... Eve was wrong, and even though it took thousands of years, nevertheless, the beginnings, that promise in Genesis, no one, even even the Jews, when it actually happened, had any notion that the Son of God himself would become a man and suffer and die for our sakes to restore the universe to its original glory. So I opened talking about prerequisites. The prerequisite for eternal life is faith in the finished work of Christ on your behalf. And may today be the day as we begin to deeply reflect about Christmas and about the coming of our Lord. May today be the day that we turn to or return to him revelation 1 5 and 6 some of the most wonderful words ever penned unto him that loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood and hath made us kings and priests unto god and his father to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Father, we see that on this first Sunday that we anticipate Advent, the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ in His birth, that it was because of our sin And it was because of his great love that we have that moment at all. And so as we reflect on that, not to get us lost in our our sin, but more for those of us who know him, that we would take the meaning of Eucharist deeply into our hearts and our minds. And instead of experiencing guilt and loss. Experience, Lord, the thankfulness and the gratitude because you took upon yourself the cross and all of that, what that means. 
in order to bring us into a place where we have not just life and life abundant, but eternal life. We thank you and we praise you through Christ our Lord. Amen.